This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, Ismail Patel is in conversation with Diana Darke on Islamic architecture and Europe. Welcome to a podcast by Network Reorient. Today, I have a special guest uh, who has lived in the Middle East, and particularly Syria, who is very versed in the Middle East culture and particularly its archaeology, sorry, its architecture. She has appeared on the BBC and major mainstream newspapers, and she's written many books, including Travel Guide to Syria, My House in Damascus, The Merchant of Syria, The Last Sanctuary in Aleppo, which was co-authored, and recently, and which we are particularly interested today is her recent book, Stealing from the Saracens, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe. Please welcome Diana Daki. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for, for, for joining us, really. Diana, before we start, uh, really, your, the title of your book is what caught my attention, in particularly the term Saracen, which, you know, it's uh, a lot of people consider it as either unnecessary or not known at the present time or even derogatory. So how did you come to choose that title for a book that looks at more Islamic influence in Europe? Okay, well, it's a very deliberate choice and I'll explain, I'll explain to you why. It's because Christopher Wren, um, England's most famous architect who built St. Paul's, he wrote 300 years ago that what we call the Gothic style should rightly be called the Saracen style. Now, that was the language of his time. Obviously, this is in the 17th century, uh, because in his day, the word Saracen meant all Arab Muslims, basically. So, so it's, it's because the book is an exploration of this. To what extent was Christopher Wren right to say that what we call Gothic should be called Saracen? So that's why we wanted the word Saracen in the title and then when I researched it a little bit, I saw that the derivation of the word Saracen is actually from the Arabic Sarikin, meaning thieves. So yes. I thought, ah, so stealing from the people we are calling thieves. So that, that uh, works well. In fact, in Arabic, it works even better because it's a sarka min sarikin. So that's a, a double, you know, it, it's stronger actually in the Arabic than in the English. So um, that, that's the reason for it. it it's, it's, it all goes back to Christopher Wren and the use of Saracens. And of course, um, Saracens had, you know, has acquired a, a sort of, it's an old fashioned word, but it's acquired, it was the language of the Crusades. So it was a, it was a, a derogatory way of referring to, the, to Arab Muslims. And so again, this is a way of, um, you know, picking up on all these nuances about how words acquire different meanings uh, you know, across the centuries. And, and so it's reminding people of how ridiculous it is that, that actually we called these people thieves, we in Europe called these people thieves, when actually we took an awful lot of things from them. So that's, that's the title in a nutshell. So almost you're trying to reclaim the terminology back to its yeah, rightful exactly. uh, etymology. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to be slightly funny. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a double irony. 
Very good, excellent. Okay, uh, having taken that out of our way, uh, so what inspired you write about uh, architecture? And, and maybe this gives you an opportunity to tell us about your background as well. Right, well, I, I don't think I'd realized until I started writing this book just how much architecture has formed um, a backdrop to my life, really, from a very early age. I think I've just had this fascination with architecture and early buildings and what architecture is all about because it's so physical you know it's it's what it's a choice architecture it's what you so your home is is the choice of where you want to live and it, it's a reflection of you then in a way and of course architectural statements in politics are also incredibly powerful again i mean christopher wren actually said architecture has its political use it establishes a nation and makes people love their native country. So he was well aware of, of how important it was. And the thing that inspired me to write this particular book was when Notre Dame caught fire last year and the whole world was mesmerized by this Gothic cathedral going up in flames and there was this great outpouring of grief from the French nation, you know, their identity going up in flames and, uh, and I just, I just thought, you know, wait a minute. Um, yes, of course it is, you know, you do associate it with your cultural identity, but actually perhaps it would be a good thing to understand a bit more about the Gothic backstory um, so that you don't take all the credit, as it were. Of course, of course, the French have to take some of the credit, most of the credit for it, but, but a lot of the elements of Gothic architecture have come from elsewhere. And what the French did was synthesize it into something new. So, it was because I wanted to explain this backstory about Gothic that I felt um, I wanted to write the book. Okay, let me pick a few things uh, from that statement you've given us. Uh, first thing about architecture itself, to most ordinary people, architecture sort of almost would reflect the environment uh, the building is built upon. But obviously you're trying to extend that to say that it makes a political statement. Do you want to sort of expand on that? Well, I mean, you've only got to look at um, pretty much every um, important, you know, every time a ruler came in, in in a new civilization to make their their stamp, their mark, if you like, after a period of time, after a sort of period of consolidation, usually they want to make a political statement in a building. And what's more, they want to put their name on it, you know, so this, this is very common. Um, so, so um, you know, the first Muslim political statement was the Dome of the Rock. The Umayyads wanted to say, right, we are a new culture, we've arrived, and they wanted a, to build a monument that dominated the skyline of Jerusalem. And so the Dome of the Rock is the first sort of statement building to say, we are new, we, we have synthesized what was there before, obviously, in this building, because, of course, they didn't just create everything new. They synthesized what the Byzantine and classical heritage had left them but they made it into something new. And this is what repeatedly happens, basically, that a new ruler comes in and synthesizes what was there before and, and puts their own mark on it, and then usually um, puts their name on it somewhere as well. And, and, and so, um, you know, Christopher Wren was very conscious that St. Paul's Cathedral had to dominate the skyline. Um, you know, all the uh, medieval bishops wanted their Gothic cathedrals to to dominate the skyline. I mean, it, was, it was almost a sort of competition, you know, so if one city 
got a, a nice Gothic cathedral, and and so the bishop, who was slightly in rivalry, perhaps as as you know, obviously people tend to be in rivalries, um, thought right, I I want one, but I want it slightly bigger and better. I mean, it's still going on in Dubai at the moment. You know, Dubai wants the biggest and best to show to sort of put its mark on the world. It's architecture has always been used like that in in public monuments. Thanks. Uh, let me go back on another point that you raised, and that is to do with the French uh, outpouring emotion at the burning of the Notre Dame. Uh, this is a secular state, almost frowns upon any religious symbols, including the cross in public spaces. What do you think is at play here uh, that there was an outpouring, certain outpouring of emotions during the burning of the Notre Dame? Well, exactly. That 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 is what was so ironic about it. That the French have always prided themselves on on the separation of, of church and state, and the whole the whole culture of laicity, as they call it, you know, the secularity. So, so it is um, it is it is a a very interesting one, and it's almost as if uh, what happened was a kind of spiritual awakening for the French, because church attendance was right down since the fire. A lot of lot more French have gone on pilgrimage to other sites um, around France because obviously they can't go to Notre Dame anymore. It, it's as if it's it's been a kind of spiritual awakening for them, and church attendance is way up. So uh, it's it's incredible the power that one building can have on a on a nation when it didn't even realize it until it thought it was about to lose it. Sure. Talking about power of building, of course, you've already mentioned Christopher Wren. Uh, one of the greatest sort of British or English architect, uh, and his building of uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, can you sort of elaborate more on his uh, appreciation of uh, what would say Muslim architecture and whether there has been any uh, adoption or importing of Muslim architecture within St. Paul's Cathedral? Yes, well, that's the other reason why the book itself um, why we chose as the front cover the interior of the dome of St. Paul's because Christopher Wren wrote himself that in the dome of St. Paul's he said I have used the Saracen vaulting because and he explains why with a series of diagrams and everything he said it is the best and he's compared all the different systems of vaulting but he he appreciates the Saracen vaulting because of its um, incredible grasp of geometry and um, you know Christopher Wren was somebody who really appreciated geometry he was a great mathematician um, and, and geometer himself and so he never talked about architectural problems he always talked about geometrical solutions and so that's what he really appreciated about um, about the Saracen style of vaulting as he called it you know that it's incredible grasp of, of geometry which was new um, it, it, it um, you know, in Europe, uh, this all came in from from the Islamic world, basically. So, so this uh, uh, the fact that he used it, and and also that he he the other thing he borrowed, if you like, from um, Islamic styles, was this idea of disguising the structural elements. He didn't like the use of buttressing, obvious buttressing. Uh, he, he wanted, he didn't want people to be able to see how the building stood up. So with the dome of St. Paul's, he uses four semi-domes underneath it to sort of spread the load, the weight of the dome. 
and that is something that he he took from um, the Ottoman architect Sinan, um, who who uh, lived about 130, 150 years before him, and who was a contemporary of Michelangelo as well. A very very influential figure, Sinan, and um, so so Christopher Wren saw how Sinan dominated the the skyline of Istanbul with these very tall uh, mosques like the Suleymaniye and um, again you know identified with that that idea of dominating the skyline but how to make it the dome look weightless from underneath to disguise how it was supported and all of that uh, he, he openly says is techniques that he has borrowed. Now we mentioned that you know people like Christopher and credited uh, Muslims for uh, the architectural excellence that they had and his, his uh, indebtedness to them. Why do you think that has now disappeared and almost not only forgotten, but deliberately uh, sidelined? Yes, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it, it does, I mean, some people have, uh, he wasn't the only person to say this. A few other people said it as well. A few French architects also held that view. Um, but of course, um, it didn't suit the, the political narrative in those days, and it didn't, doesn't suit it much today either. <laughs> uh, that's another reason, really, why um, I wanted to write the book, because uh, I felt, well, you know, we have to acknowledge in these days of Islamophobia and you know, the rise of extreme right-wing nationalism, but that actually we, you know, we all cultures are interconnected and we've all learnt from each other, you know, from the very start. And and so, and, and what's more, most of the direction of borrowing was from east to west, not entirely, but, but a great deal of it was, and, and especially in the case uh, of architecture. So I, I feel it's important to acknowledge that, 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 Everything builds on everything else. And so you can't just say, oh, this is mine. I, I invented this. You have to acknowledge where all these ideas came from. Talking about architecture itself, I'm not an architect uh, sort of specialist, but there's two, two things that I've picked up from your book, the idea that of the dome itself being imported into Europe. And second was the minaret, the influence of the minaret. We've sp spoken a little bit about the dome, uh, the dome of... Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. But prior to that, we also mentioned the Dome of uh, Kubat al-Sakra, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem in Al-Aqsa Sanctuary. What influence had that on, on Europe? Well, that's actually quite funny. Uh, that this, is, this is one of the actually quite amusing things that I found in the research is how often in, in the Middle Ages, people just got it wrong. So Basically, when the Crusaders went, uh, you know, on crusade to to recapture Jerusalem as, as they saw it, um, they mistook the Dome of the Rock for the Temple of Solomon, and so they uh, they they turned it into a Christian church, and they put a they called it the Temple of God, and they put a cross on top, and then. Uh, Maps were done by pilgrims visiting Jerusalem, and the very first pictorial map that was then printed and was therefore widely available to everybody, uh, which was in 1486, was done by a Dutch pilgrim, and it shows the Dome of the Rock center stage with an onion dome, which of course it at no time had, but 
but they showed it central center stage as, as the main building in Jerusalem and marked it as the Temple of Solomon. And, and so this became very influential, this map. It was, it was reprinted, translated into many languages. And so it led to a lot of Christian churches being modeled on the first Muslim shrine in ignorance, basically. They didn't realize um, what it was. They, they misunderstood it. Uh, so I, I found that quite amusing because there are, there are Templar churches, you know, round churches designed in that way. Um, you know, there's, there's Temple in London, you know, the underground station, which is named after Temple Church, the temple, you know, where the um, inns of court, the law courts are. Um, there's one in Cambridge, there are several across Europe. I mean, it's it's actually hilarious. Right. They're all modeled Brighton on the name of the Sorry. The Brighton Pavilion related to that as well? No, 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 no. The Brighton Pavilion is um, is, is much later, part of the Gothic revival. Um, but that's when Gothic came back into fashion in the 19th century, after a lot of Europeans uh, went and did what was called the Grand Tour and, and started to travel more and, and saw, you know, they visited Andalusia and, and, and also Istanbul and went further afield to places like Damascus, Aleppo, um, Cairo and Alexandria and, and started to bring back, um, you know, um, influences and, and ideas from that. And, and, and this led to a Gothic revival. And so it became a sort of fantasy, an Orientalist fantasy to build something, something like the Royal Pavilion, um, you know, where, where, where even the chimneys are turned into mini minarets. Um, that's it's just a sort of freak, a freak, a fairly short lived thing, actually. Um, but so the influence of the minaret as well in Europe, how, how far and wide has that been, do you think? What, the minaret? Yes. Um, well, the first, um, what, what art historians think is that the first actual minaret, um, again, sort of happened by accident in a way, because uh, it was on the Damascus Umayyad Mosque, which was itself built on top of um, a temple, a temple to, um, well, a Roman temple, and before that a Greek temple, and before that an Aramean temple. It had always, if you like, been the spiritual center and then the christians also had it as their cathedral of, of john the baptist but which they shared incidentally for nearly a century the muslims and christians shared that sacred space they just even used the same entrance and christians turned one way and muslims turned the other way and that arrangement only came to an end when they literally ran out of space so um then then the um the muslims negotiated with the christians and said right now we want to take this over and re rebuild a completely new mosque here, and in exchange, we'll give you the land for four new churches. So to this day, that, that is the way it's worked. There are still 17 churches in the old city of Damascus um, that are still functioning. But, but the, the site in the center became the Damascus Umayyad Mosque. And, but because it was built on the um, original temple, there were towers. The Roman temple had towers in the corners. And so, um, with the call to prayer, obviously, um, it was more effective in a large city if you stood up high to, to, to call. So the towers were already there. So it was a kind of natural extension to make the tower a bit taller so that the muezzin could, could call to prayer from higher up. And the shape, the square shape, was partly because that was the shape of the Roman 
tower, but also because all over Syria um, were churches with square bell towers. So they were copying, if you like, that style of the square tower. Um, but over the centuries, it became much more embellished. You know, it, it started, um, had a lot more carving on it um, than, than any church tower would have done. Um, so, uh, so yes, it, it, it's, and then of course the very first minaret that happened in in uh, in Europe was in was in Muslim Spain in in Cordoba, um, and what's quite funny there again in a way is that so so you've got the the what was the minaret of the Cordoba Mesquita the Cordoba Mosque, which when the Christians then came and took that building back and made it into a cathedral they turned it into the bell tower so it's back and forth. You know, from bell tower to minaret and back to bell tower again. Um, you know, this is just an example of, of the way things, according to who's in power, um, the way buildings are used. Sure. Okay. So we we spoke about. I, I found very interesting that the, the Crusaders went and uh, obviously appropriated the Dome of the Rock into it, the Temple of Solomon, and that became the imagery of that. Then was transported into Europe and. Uh, we had doms uh, emerging as a symbols of churches as well. But more on a more important note, does the influence of the Muslim world emerge mainly from the Crusaders, or is it more than that and other other channels as well? No, In the early there were there were many earlier channels. Uh, a lot of the architectural um, features had actually found their way in before the Crusaders. The Crusaders popularized it, if you like, by by bringing it back and then of course it all converged into into gothic cathedrals at you know when when they returned from the crusades because that's the period when gothic cathedrals suddenly took off but um before that um again through muslim spain that's where it first begins a lot of the architectural features like the trefoil arch that's the triple arch which of course the Christians then adopt as representing the Trinity. So you see, they take the arch, but they use it differently. That's what that's what's interesting. They like the arch, um, but they use it to express something different. And and so in in Cordoba, you then you get the the um, so this is before the Crusades. We're talking now. So via Cordoba, you get um, trefoil arches, multifoil arches, um, and of course all the vaulting. The, the incredible vaulting inside the Cordoba Mesquita. The main vault there is phenomenal. It, it was examined um, just a few years ago by some Spanish architectural engineers. They got permission to go in and, and do an extensive study on it. And they said it was the most superb piece of geometry they had ever seen. And it hasn't needed any structural repair for 1500 years. You know, it's just, just incredible. A thousand years. That's ago. incredible. So just, just to that, that's an incredible fact you're just giving us. So this, because of its ingenuity, the Muslim architectural ingenuity, the Cordoba Masjid has not required any repairs for 1500 years. That, not that particular um, vault, no, it, it's been phenomenal. And of course, so when Christians saw um, those incredible, um, that incredible ribbed vaulting technique, all based on geometry, um, they started to copy it. And um, it then so it moved northward into into buildings in the north and then into buildings in southern France, where um, the Benedictines at that time, who were the big Christian power in in northern Europe, 
um, from their headquarters in um, their main monastery in Cluny, they were sponsoring a pilgrimage route to Santiago de Compostela. And so they built um, a series of Cluniac shrines on the way for the pilgrims to stop at on the way to Santiago de Compostela. And that's where you see for the first time some, uh, some of these architectural elements being incorporated into those Cluniac shrines. So you see the black and white, you know, the, the, the two-tone brickwork, you know, either black and white or red and white, um, because red and white were the colors of Abdurrahman in, in Cordoba, and the black and white stonework, it goes right back to Syria because of the black basalt and the, the white limestone. Those are the two stones they had to hand. So this is a very early Syrian style. Um, so, so all of this finds its way in then into, uh, into southern France and even things like cloisters. You know, that's that's not that that is that is come from Syria as well, but but not not from Muslim um, influence. The first uh, the first cloisters were in southern Syria in early early uh, early Christian, so early Byzantine um, monasteries. Now, you've, you've, uh, there's one thing that really caught my eye uh, in your book is uh, your analysis of the portrait of Henry the Eighth. I mean, the, the detail you have for that is incredible. Uh, he is a king of England, uh, yet you see within it a lot of uh, Muslim influences. You, if, you, if you can recall, you want to go through them for us, please? Yes, yes. Well, again, you see, at the time, people just um, kind of took all this for granted because, um, you see, there was an awful lot of trade going on um, with the Ottomans at, at that time. Um, and so uh, it was... Um, it became normal, really, for, 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 for royalty and for rich people to start to have um, oriental carpets. So Turkish carpets, Persian carpets on the floor. So King Henry in that portrait is standing on a Turkish carpet with um, a, standing on a, with a pattern of a geometric star in it. Um, the curtains in the backdrop and the, um, the border of his cloak has got the design of the Islamic knot, you know, all of these sort of patterns. This, this, this sort of style started to become um, very popular and, and were, were very much sought after by um, people who were rich enough to acquire them because, you know, the, the, the luxury of the, of the, the textiles in particular, um, all coming out of um, places like Damascus, were, 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 were quite uh, exceptional and, and, you know the quality of the workmanship. I mean, Europe had nothing, nothing similar at the time. So it was, it was again, it was literally the best. So of course, the king wanted it. But yeah, this goes back to the earlier question asked. It's it's uh, really incredible that you know when even the the royalties wanted to uh, look or have show ex exhibit Muslim worlds uh, geometry material. Yet they would not acknowledge or are not willing to acknowledge that publicly. Well, I don't think they thought about it in, in that way, but they could recognize the quality of the workmanship and the quality of the materials. And, and they liked it very much. So um, and of course, these things were expensive, so they could afford to buy them. And, and again, it's a sort of rarity value that, that they had something that um, that nobody else had. So so uh, um, so. 
another example, for ex uh, recently I was in Chartres in, in France, and in their museum there, they've got a goblet called the Goblet of Charmagne. Um, and this again is an interesting uh, sort of appropriation, if you like, because the goblet itself is, uh, every, every art historian will tell you now, that goblet is is definitely traceable back to Syria because it's a type of enameled glass that only Syria had the capability to make. Um, you know, the glass center, Syria was the glass center of the world, you know, for, for, for several centuries from, from about the ninth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Um, you know, places like Raqqa and Damascus had incredible um, glass workshops and, and Aleppo. And, and this, this glass, um, the glass itself that they call Charlemagne's goblet um, is dated, in fact, to the 13th century. And yet Charlemagne wasn't even born then. You know, he, he, he is 200 years earlier. So, but, but even so, they were so keen to make, make to call it the goblet of a king that they didn't have the knowledge, you see, at that time to, to really understand the background, where it had come from and what it was. All they knew was that it was amazing workmanship um, and and so they wanted to appropriate it for themselves talking about appropriation we've also we've talked about the dome of the rock uh, and the minarets but we've also got the arches of the al-aqsa mosque itself in jerusalem that uh, sort of uh, you you talk about in uh, venetian architecture including our own here bradford wool exchange uh, you want to elaborate on that for us please yes well um again here, as, as quite often in the book, I've been able to draw on the earlier researches of um, very, very dedicated scholars. So um, a lot of work's been done on the connections between Venice and the East by um, an architectural historian, professor of architectural history at Cambridge, Deborah Howard, her name is. And she devoted 10 years of her life to studying all of this. And um, she discovers that the Doge's palace in Venice, so this is, you know, again, the ruler, the ruler <laughs> of Venice, um, he models his palace in the 14th century on the Al-Aqsa Mosque because, again, it's a mistake, <laughs> he thinks the Venetians, like the Crusaders, thought that the Al-Aqsa Mosque was Solomon's palace. So they, again, it was a complete case of misidentification um, and, and it perpetuated through, through wrong labeling on maps <laughs> again. And so, um, so he modeled it on that. And, and Solomon's palace is described in great detail in the Book of Kings in the Bible as a three-story building with an inner courtyard and a portico front. And so the Doge in Venice models, um, you know, builds his, uh, his palace to resemble that, you see, yeah. and uh, of course, the, um, the the design, if you like, I mean, so, so uh, it becomes a sort of, if you like, a cathedral of commerce. Um, the uh, the idea again in, in in the Islamic world of um, Khan a caravanserai, where where um, you have a a courtyard uh, in uh, with with you know, and and the commodity is traded. Underneath it, and, and the, the bedrooms of the merchants um, are upon the first floor. Um, this becomes a style that um, the Venetians, when they're trading so much in the Eastern Mediterranean, again they adopt the lifestyle that, that they see 
in eastern ports like Alexandria and and um, and when they go inland to to places like uh, Damascus and Aleppo, they they copy all these styles and even even the clothing they they start to copy and and lots of Arabic words come into the Venetian dialect and and um, uh, and so they all the, the the Venetian elite starts to build their own palaces modeled on this the, these kind of Islamic khans that they've seen so they can store all their very valuable commodities um, on the ground floor and then live above it. So, um, you know, very interesting um, borrowings of, of this type. And, and so, um, yes, you know, you see the architecture of, of that sort of very elaborate Khan palace type of idea um, in, in Bradford. And, and in Glasgow, there's a carpet factory that uses it as well, that, that's openly modeled on the Doge's palace. Okay. Uh, so what's interesting, really, what we've been calling the Gothic architecture should really be uh, Islamic architecture, really. Uh, am I right in surmising that? Well, uh, yes. I mean, it would be very difficult to change it now. The funny thing is that the term Gothic itself is quite a recent term. It only came into use in the 16th century um, when um, an Italian art historian used it for the first time. He's also the, the first person to use the term Renaissance. But before that, when you know, the actual medieval Gothic uh, architecture was called the French style, because it was built by the French, by, by the Frankish, you know, the Frankish, um, the Frankish knights, you know, I mean, it was, it was supported by money that had been gained on the Crusades and by um, taxes um, from, you know, uh, um, extricated from, um, from Muslim Spain as well. And, and so there was a lot of money around at that time, and it all converged into the building of these, you know, what we now call Gothic. But at the time, it was just known as the French style for centuries. And so suddenly then this, this one Italian in the 16th century decides to call it Gothic, um, which is clearly, you know, um, a misnomer because everybody says, and as, as Christopher Wren himself said, how can you call a style which is so delicate, so full of, you know, delicate um, uh, decorations and so, so light, um, you know, Gothic is heavy and, and, you know, the Goths are associated with destruction and heaviness, you know, it's the opposite. Uh, very, very curious. Um, but anyway, it's stuck and I don't, I don't suppose it's going to change now, but um, uh, but technically, would it be correct to consider it as an Islamic? Uh, so rather than say Islamic influenced, uh, I think is what you'd have to say, because obviously um, it takes a lot of elements of Islamic architecture and reworks them into the, the cathedral. But but a lot of the elements, like the pointed windows, obviously are Islamic in origin. The trefoil arch, the, the multifoil arch, the vaulting, um, you know. Uh, and if you're going to then extend it into, you know, not not Islamic but pre-Islamic things from from the Middle East, then you have to include the twin towers because that um, the early churches in Syria had these twin towers flanking uh, a monumental arch. They had the cloister, pre-Islamic influence. Um, so all of these all of these elements get fused together to make something new, which is what happens to now be called Gothic. But most of its features are Islamic in origin. Sure. Let me sort of put you in political sort of, and we're coming towards the end, time really flies, and that's, you know, it's amazing uh, when you're having conversation. Uh, what does 
do you think the airbrushing aware of Muslim influence in Europe say about Europe itself? That's the first question. And maybe on that is what would happen to the Muslim minority now in Europe? Uh, does it have an impact on them as well? So maybe there's two parts to that question. Yes. Well, again, this is another reason I felt it was important to write this book now, because, uh, you know, I think we, we are sadly living in a time of, of Islamophobia. A lot of people can only associate the Middle East with um, war and chaos and terrorism. And, you know, and it's it's so sad that um, that, that, you know, we're talking obviously small numbers of of, of terrorist groups, but sadly, they dominate the headlines. They've caused a lot of havoc and destruction. And so they, they, you know, Islam has been tarred by their brush, if you like. It's a great, great shame because Islam, of course, is, is not in any way a, a, a violent religion. It's a, a you know, religion of, of peace. So um, it, it, it is a great shame. And so this book, in a way, is an attempt to remind people that a lot of good things have come to us from the Muslim world and from the Middle East. And we, we shouldn't forget that. We, we should be aware of that and we should acknowledge our debts to, to that part of the world. And, and I feel that what it does is it enhances your appreciation of all these buildings. So, so you know, when I've been to, to see Gothic cathedrals now in, in July in France, it's really improved and deepened my appreciation of them now that I understand the backstory. And so um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help people understand how, how multi-layered and how multicultural all these buildings really are. Excellent. Diana, thank you very much for what's been a very powerful presentation of how architecture has worked and been part of fabric of the, uh, from Muslim world to, to the West, uh, and in particularly Europe. Uh, and I think if more people try to understand the intercultural fertilization, I think we'd be much better off overall. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, I, I wish you all the success with the book and hopefully uh, with the next publication as well. Is there anything else you're working on now? No, no, I'm still completely absorbed by this one. <laughs> it's, it's given me so much to think about. I think it's, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm already working on a second edition because there's so much more to, to discover. I look forward to reading the second edition. Thank you very much, Diana, and hopefully see you, uh, speak to you again. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.